Let me pray for God's help, and then we'll get started. Our Father, we give you praise that we get to open up your very words to us. Help us to receive them as that. Receive Ruth chapter 1 as the God of the universe speaking to his people. Thank you for this revelation, and we pray that you would open our eyes to it, open our hearts, and change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. No one is immune to pain and suffering in this fallen world. We've all experienced it. We even heard about it in the pastoral prayer and the suffering of of the loss of a loved one. Some of you are experiencing it right now in different ways. We all experience different kinds and different levels of pain. Some of you have physical pain in your back, your legs, your neck. For some of you, it was just hard to get out of bed this morning. Maybe some are watching on live stream and they couldn't come, though they wanted to. The reason why was because they have so much pain in their body. Others of you feel the pain of loss of friends or family. Others feel the pain that comes in relational loss, the turmoil that you might experience between a family member, a son, a daughter, a parent. Others feel the pain of the uncertainty of future. What's going to happen in the future? I'm, I'm encouraged by the college ministry that takes place here at this church. Many of you in college not knowing what's going to happen afterward. It's up in the air. And there's a level of pain that comes with that. Difficulty in wondering, what's gonna, where's gonna, my life going to go? What's going to happen next? If you think about it, pain is the result of some kind of loss that we experience. It, it, in, in physical pain, we're experiencing the loss of comfort in health, good health. In relational pain, we're experiencing the loss of peace with others. In emotional pain through, through death, we're experiencing the loss of the joy that we once had with that person whom we love so much. In the pain of uncertainty of the future, we're experiencing the loss of security. I feel so insecure because I don't know what's going to happen. Pain is always connected to loss. Pain is prevalent because loss is prevalent in this fallen world. And one of the first questions many of us ask in the midst of pain and loss is this. Where's God? Does he care? Is he indifferent? To my pain, is he helpless? Could he do anything? If so, why didn't he? You ever asked those questions? Oh, I'm sure you have. Maybe not out loud, but in the deepest places of our hearts, we've asked them. In the first chapter of Ruth, it feels like there is almost an eerie silence from God in the midst of the pain of the people in this story. It feels like he's not even around. And as the story unfolds, however, what we come to find is that God's hand was in and through everything the whole time. What felt like at the beginning that he was hands-off, we come to realize he was totally hands-on the whole time. But it takes a little bit to get to that point. Like, it takes till you get to the end of the book To realize that. Oh, isn't that how life feels at times? God feels so hands-off when you're in the middle of it. And later, you look back and see 
He was there the whole time. So as we reflect upon this first part of the story of Ruth, which we can call providence in pain, providence is just a word that describes God's control and guiding of all things. Chapter 1 here unfolds in three scenes. You can title them like this. Feeling the pain, responses to pain, and seeing providence in pain. So that's going to be our outline for this morning as we work through this first chapter of Ruth. And I'm not going to read the whole thing up front. What I want us to do is to draw us into the story. Like live in it again and feel what's going on here so that we feel the hope that is provided at the end of the book of Ruth. So let's begin with scene number one, feeling the pain. I want you to, I want you to see the pain of these people in this story. Look at verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, stop. Right off the bat, things aren't good. The period in which the book of Ruth takes place is in that period, that time in which, in the nation of Israel's history, in which the judges ruled. You ever read the book of Judges? That's a rough book. (laughs) There's a lot happening in there that ain't pretty. It is a time of great chaos. Listen to how the book of Judges ends. And this gives us a taste of this period of time in which Ruth is set. The book of Judges ends like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not a good thing. That's the setting of the book of Ruth. Everyone doing what they want, and when people are sinners, that's bad. And there was no king in Israel at that time. That's really important to the story of Ruth. Because we're going to see the book of Ruth provides the solution, at least gives us a a glimpse of the solution to that problem. There was no king. So there's two big problems. Total chaos, everyone's doing what they want. No king as a result, there's total chaos. And then, as it mentions there in verse 1, there's famine, there's no food. So what are the people of Israel going to do? Some have to just survive, right? They're just trying to survive. And so we see this family here in the book of Ruth have to leave their homeland to find food. And that's what happens in in the second part of verse 1. It says, And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the story is focusing on this one family from the nation of Israel who are from the city of Bethlehem. And that's very important. We're going to see why that's the case later on as the story unfolds. But this man realizes if he's going to keep his wife and his two sons alive, they got to get out and go find food. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So we're given the names of characters here. The one whom the story is focused on at this point is named Elimelech. Anybody know what that name means? Eli. El is God, E is my, my God, Eli Melech, king. My God is king. 
Do you see the irony? Where's this king? Where is this sovereign ruler? Look at the guy whose name, my God is king, means, and yet this guy is having to leave his homeland because there's a famine in the place where God is supposed to be king? Where is this king? His wife's name is Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely, and that's certainly not how she's feeling at the moment. There's even more irony. The famine is in Bethlehem. They're leaving their hometown of Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. What irony is that? There ain't no bread in the house. And they have to leave the place called house of bread and go to where? I mean, it's just the plot just thickens in just two verses. They're going to Moab. What's that? Well, if you read the story of Judges, you know that Moab was one of the countries that overtook Israel and made the people slaves. So God raised up a judge named Ehud to free Israel by killing Eglon, the king of Moab. I would encourage you to read that story this afternoon, but maybe don't read it to your kids at bedtime because it might give them nightmares. It is a very descriptive story about how Ehud killed this king. But the Bible is true and descriptive. It's good. So Israel and Moab were not friendly with one another. So why, why is he going there? I mean, maybe things had settled down at this point, but it is the closest place to find food. You can imagine the kind of shame, though, that Elimelech would have in leaving his hometown to sojourn in this country, the enemies just for survival. And if you notice what it says there at the end of verse 2, it says they remained there. This is for an indefinite period of time. No plan of returning to Bethlehem. Not anytime soon. And so then the first two verses alone were introduced with a great deal of pain. It's a chaotic time. There's no food. Uh, the family has to leave the only home they've ever known. They have to humble themselves to receive food from former enemies. It's pain upon pain upon pain. And it only gets worse. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. That's abrupt. Didn't that feel like it came out of nowhere? It seemed the way the author was setting this story up is that Elimelech is the main character. And now he's dead. I think we're meant to feel the abruptness here. There's a shift in focus from Elimelech now to Naomi but we expected, I would have expected, okay, this is going to be a story about the hardships of the journey of this man named Elimelech and leading his family to this place called Moab, and we'll see what God does through that. Nope, he's dead. Why the abruptness? Even like this unfeeling terseness in the way the story is being told, I think the author here is being intentional. I don't think it's because he didn't know all the details of what happened, nor is it that he was too lazy to record them. He's intentionally being abrupt so that we, as the readers of this story, feel it. It's not supposed to happen. We feel the abruptness. This man whose name means my God is king is now being buried. And the ones who have to bury him are his wife and kids. So much for this king. So the story shifts from Elimelech 
to the wife, Naomi. You can even hear that at the end of verse 2, how it mentions Naomi was left with her two sons. When the story opened up, they were, these sons were introduced as Elimelech's sons. Now it's, now it's Naomi. The focus is on her. You can imagine in this very patriarchal culture, this would have been absolutely devastating for Naomi. She didn't have a college degree to fall back on for a, for a job to get. It's not how it worked in that culture. She relied totally on Elimelech for provision. And now he's gone. The vulnerability she would have experienced would have been, no doubt, overwhelming. Many years ago, uh, when my kids were, were even younger than they are now, as me and my wife have tried over the years to instill, particularly in our sons, the importance of feeling the responsibility to care for and protect, for the, women, protect the women in their lives, sissy and mama, so they do a good job of that as best as they can, trying to instill those characteristic qualities in them. Well, I, got a, I, I caught a glimpse of this in a conversation I was having with my kids many years back. My daughter, Lydia, five years old, I think at the time, asked me this question. Daddy, why can't a girl marry two girls? What does that mean? Oh, then I realized she's asking me, why can't two girls get married to each other? Now, why did she ask that question? It's not because she had been exposed at that point to things that were uh, unbiblical. It's because she wanted to marry mama. <laughs> she loved her mama. And so she wondered, why can't I marry mama? My response, as I was thinking how to articulate this, I mean, after I've been to seminary and I got a biblical degree in undergrad and got more Bible in seminary, I, th- I think I know. Let me give a good, fully kind of biblical answer here to my daughter. And it was this, honey. As you look at what the scriptures teach, God has a beautiful design. And his design for marriage is between a man and a woman. That's his design. And I felt good about myself. That's a good answer. It wasn't good enough for my son, who chimed in, about six years old at the time. And he said, yeah, and besides that, who's going to protect those girls? You see what he's doing. He's providing more of the fuller, beautiful picture of God's good design. That God designed it for a man and a woman to be together, so part of the role of the man is to be a protector. And I felt much shame at that point. (laughs) My son got it right, praise the Lord. And I felt proud at the same time. Weird emotions. This is what Naomi is feeling at this point. She is in a very vulnerable place. But thankfully... She still has these two sons who will eventually grow up. We don't know how old they are at this point. But they will eventually assume this role of male leadership in their lives. That's how it worked. And so we have some good news in the midst of all this pain. Naomi's sons, they end up getting married. If you look at that in verse 4. Verse 4, these two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So they get married, certainly brought joy to Naomi, not only because she now has daughters-in-law, she also gained the hope of continuing on the family lineage of Elimelech. Sense of security she's probably feeling at this point in the midst of all this insecurity that she felt. But whom do her sons marry? 
foreigners, Moabites. This would have been a very big deal, not because there was some Jewish law against interracial marriage, like interethnic marriage, but because there was law against interreligious marriage. And no, no doubt, these foreigners, the likelihood of them being followers of Yahweh was very unlikely. And so it's kind of a mess at this point. However, at least there's some hope of grandchildren to carry on Elimelech's name. But even that hope was waning because it says at the end of verse 4, did you notice this, what it says at the end of verse 4? After they married these women, they lived in Moab for 10 years. Got married, and they're in Moab 10 years longer. Where's the grandkids? Shouldn't Naomi have like 10 by this point between the two sons? Where are they? Something is not right. However, there's still hope because her, they, maybe they'll have kids at some point. Verse 5. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. You feeling the devastation here? All the men in her life stripped from her. She has nothing. What's she going to do? She, she's been uprooted from the security of her homeland in Bethlehem. She's been dwelling in a foreign land with her former enemies. Her husband's been dead for over 10 years, at least. She has to raise her sons on her own. These foreign, they marry foreign women. Then they die. The two sons die, leaving her with no grandchildren while her family lineage is on the verge of extinction. And she is now perhaps in the most vulnerable position a woman could be at that time. No man in her life to provide and protect for her. That's just the first five verses of the book of Ruth. (laughs) This is a lot of pain. Pain upon pain leaving us to wonder. As I think we're meant to wonder in the way the story is told. Where's God? Where is he? He doesn't seem to be here. There just seems to be this eerie silence from God. What is he doing? And then the story moves into the second scene where the author paints a picture of the various responses to the pain felt by the characters who are left. And at this point, Naomi takes center stage. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them Food. Now, if you notice, that's the first mention of God, the Lord, in this story. The first scene, we're left wondering, like, where is he? And now we hear him, hear of him, having provided food. Finally, that's, I think, the response we're supposed to have. Like, finally, where was he before? Why did it take so long? So Naomi heads back to Bethlehem, her homeland, which she hasn't been to in who knows how many years, certainly over a decade, and her two foreign daughters-in-law accompanying her on the journey. Look at verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went out. They went on the way to return to the land of of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, 
They lifted up their voices and wept. You see what she's doing here? She's trying to free these young women from feeling any responsibility to to take care of her. And you catch the blessing she extends to them. She's asking the Lord to be kind to them and give them rest and security. It's almost as if Naomi is asking God to do for them what he, what she thinks he has not done for her. Like, like, stay away from me, daughters-in-law. I'm cursed. You hang around me, more bad things are going to happen. Go away and, and be blessed. But they wouldn't have it. They weep. It's a very touching scene. If it were to a movie, there would have been no doubt some sappy music behind it. Drawing out this scene, these women, I mean, they've been through a lot together, right? Forged a bond that could not easily be broken, and they didn't want to break it. Verse 10, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? that they may become your husbands. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Conversation between some stubborn women who don't want to give up because they love each other so much. Naomi pushes back, and you notice her pushback. Like, I I can't give you any more sons. I'm too old to do that. And let's just say, even if there would be some miracle that I could get pregnant. I mean, I don't have a husband, so I'd have to get married tonight. And let's say I got pregnant tonight. They'd have to be twins, in order for you to have sons anytime soon. And they'd have to be sons. And not only that, you've got to wait like 20 years to marry them. Don't do this. It makes no sense. You stay with me. It will be impossible for you to have children of your own. Now that pushback of Naomi is foreshadowing of what's going to take place later on. The author wants us to feel the impossibility that Naomi currently feels so that when God does the impossible, we stand in awe and conclude he was in it the whole time. The end of Naomi's pushback, we get a glimpse of what's been going on in her heart in the midst of all this pain. Do you hear what she said at the end of verse 13? Look at what she says there, end of verse 13. She says, for it is exceedingly bitter to me. For your sake, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I mean, she's been through a lot, a lot of pain. But what happened to her heart in the midst of all of it? She is now viewing God through the lens of her pain. That's a really dangerous place to be. She sees her pain right here, and God is on the other side, and he looks messed up. And I would propose to you, the key thing in the midst of your pain is to reverse that order. Don't first look at your pain. Look at God. 
Look at who you know he is as he's revealed himself in the word. And then that informs your pain and your struggle. And it gives you perseverance. Don't let your pain inform your view of God. That seems to be what she's doing here. Don't go there. And I would argue the book of Ruth was written for you so that you don't go there. So that you can see Naomi's life and see how she at this point responded poorly We get it. I mean, I get Naomi. I get it. But you don't have to go there. Don't go there. And notice what her daughters-in-law do in response to this. Look at verse 14. It says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This is a dramatic move on Ruth's part. Orpah listens, kisses her goodbye, heads back to Moab, Ruth clings to Naomi. What Orpah did actually made sense culturally. But for Ruth to prioritize her mother-in-law above the priority of a potential future husband and children would have been unheard of in that time period. I mean, we can even relate to this somewhat today, right? I'm not saying this is a good thing, but how many jokes have you heard about mother-in-laws? Right? It's because there's this mindset that there's, there's, there's not the kind of relationship that you should have there with, with them. So what, what Ruth is doing here is totally unheard of. She's going against all cultural norms. And Naomi knows this. So she continues in her pushback. Look at verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. Little little peer pressure and to her gods return after your sister-in-law do what she's doing she's making the smart decision go back to go back home with her go back to what you know go back to what's comfortable go back to the place where there's potential for you Ruth just then digs in her heels all the more though look at verse 16 but Ruth said do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This is unswerving, covenantal loyalty. It's not just loyalty to Naomi. Ruth is swearing covenantal loyalty to Naomi's God. Yahweh, the one true God. You realize what's, what's going on here? She is declaring that she wants Naomi's home to be her home. She wants Naomi's people to be her people. And above all that is this. She wants Naomi's God to be her God. I think this is nothing short than just radical conversion. She just got saved, <laughs> if we could put it like that forsaking everything she's known because the one true God is of more value to her than everything she's known. Verse 17. She says, Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth won. 
Her stubbornness won out. Naomi gives in. But make note here of the difference between Naomi's response to pain and Ruth's response to pain. No doubt both were grieving. Perhaps Naomi went through more. But both were experiencing real pain, yet they had two very different responses. Through the pain, Ruth was converted to the one true God and came to trust the promises he made to his covenant people. And she became part of that covenant people. But Naomi, as one of the covenant people, responds to her pain with anger, with bitterness. Towards God, it even appears. And this becomes clear in verse 19. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now you remember, Naomi means pleasant or lovely. And she's saying, nothing's been pleasant for me. There ain't been anything lovely about my life at this point. And so my name does not match what I feel. And so she decides to change her name to Mara which means bitter. Did you notice whom she's attributing all her pain to? See it? The Lord has brought this calamity upon me. Not chance, not simply the fact that she lives in a fallen world and these kind of things happen, but she says, the Almighty has done this to me. I want to ask you, is she wrong? Be careful in how you answer that question. Is she wrong? Is she speaking falsely here? The surprising truth revealed at the end of the book is this. Naomi is actually speaking truthfully. God was, indeed, ultimately in charge of her calamity and pain. Naomi knows, as you should know, the power of God to prevent the famine in the first place, which caused her family to be uprooted from their home and dwell in a, a land of former enemies. She knows God could have prevented the death of her husband and two sons. She knows perhaps he could have prevented that at least before they provided her with some grandchildren. Naomi knows God is ultimately in control. Her theology here is accurate. Then what's the problem? Doesn't accurate theology lead you away from bitterness towards God? What's the problem here? Theology is accurate, but it's woefully incomplete. Why? She rightly believes God brought the pain in some sense. Now, there's a lot of mystery there, I no doubt. 
But there should be no mystery that God is in control of all things and nothing happens ultimately by chance or apart from his sovereign will. She believes that because the Bible says that. She understands this God and who he is. But she's also at the same time believing implicitly, as we see, that it is her pain is purposeless. God brought it, but he's not good in doing so. If you have a view of God who is absolutely sovereign over all things, but he's not good, that's scary. That's not a God I want to worship. you got a God who's so good and has really good intentions, but is powerless. That's scary. It's not a God I want to worship, and it ain't the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is totally sovereign, and he is totally good. You gotta keep those things in balance when you're going through pain. What are you going through now? Keep those in balance even when you can't see either sovereignty or goodness. Believe it and let that inform what you're going through. Don't first look at the pain and then mess up one of those two things about who God is. That's what Naomi seems to be doing. Her theology was accurate on one side, but man, she was missing this other side. And that's why she's so bitter. It is so important to know God. God is doing 10,000 things behind the scenes that you can't see, and he's working it for your good. You've got to trust him. And this leads to the final scene, which we can call seeing providence in the pain. Seeing providence in the pain, we catch just a hint. We catch just a hint at the end of chapter 1 that God has been present all along in the pain. In fact, we catch a glimpse that he ordained the pain for an infinitely greater good. Look at verse 22. And Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That's huge. You should be asking, what is significant about the timing in which they showed up to Bethlehem? Barley harvest? What's that? Why mention? Why just so happen to return to Bethlehem? At the time of barley harvest, this was that season of the year when the fields were ripe for harvesting and gathering grain. And the reason why that is so important is because had they not showed up right at the time of barley harvest, Ruth would never have gone to go work in a field to gather grain. She, she's like, we, we got no men who are providing for us. Naomi, I'm going. I'm going to a field. I'm going to gather some grain. I'm just try, try to glean what's left. She would never have gone to a field to do that. And if she hadn't done that, she wouldn't have just so happened, as it says in chapter 2, chance, chanced upon her, is what the Hebrew says, drawing out the irony of this ain't chance, that she just so happened to land in the field owned by a guy named who? Boaz. Who's that? Boaz just so happened 
to be of the family lineage of Elimelech. That's chapter 2. And if she hadn't landed there, then Boaz wouldn't have kind of grown in romantic interest of Ruth. That happens in chapter 3. And if he hadn't gained in this, this romantic interest of her, they wouldn't have gotten married. That happens in chapter 4. And do you know what happens at the end of chapter 4 and the end of the story of Ruth? I want you to see it. Go to chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. What joy this is. Verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Notice it's the baby who's described as a redeemer. The baby who's described as the one who restores what was lost for Naomi. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. All of that pain Naomi experienced now has meaning. There's purpose. She's got a grandson. The Lord brought good out of what was lost. And that's, that would be very encouraging for us if the story ends there. But it would leave us short of the full principle that God is communicating to his people. If the story ended there, then the main principle that we would take away from this is something like, look what God can do. He can bring good out of what was so bad. I mean, she got a grandson. The family line is, is going to continue. So you can trust that God will work all things for your good. And that could be a helpful principle to conclude, though we might think what that then means is the good that he brings out of the bad is merely for this life alone. Great, she got a grandson. Great. He's going to have some kids. Their family line's going to continue. They're all going to die at some point anyway. Is that the good? Is this the greatest good? And frankly, Naomi could have responded, look, I'm, I'm really thankful for this, this baby boy. I'm so thankful. But why did I have to go through all that pain to get here? My, why, why couldn't Malhan or Kilion have given me a baby boy? I just want a baby. Just give me a baby, any grandson. If that was her mindset, just give me a, a baby, any baby. Missing the whole point of why she went through all she went through. And the writer of the story of Ruth tells us why that baby should not have come through Malan or Kilion. It had to be Boaz. Why? Merely for the family line of Elimelech to continue? No, Malan and Kilion could have provided that. Why did it have to be Boaz? Chapter 4, verse 17. The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, 
saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Amazing. (laughs) You know who David is? Anybody know who David is? Go on to be the greatest king in the nation of Israel. There is far more going on here than just a story, a cute story about a small Israelite family that had some misfortunes turned into good. This story has ramifications that affect the whole order and history of mankind. Whether Ruth would have children by Boaz had ramifications for the history of the world. It had to be Boaz. This baby, Obed, is not an ordinary Israelite baby in many ways. Obed is not merely a restorer of some temporal misfortune. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse would become the father of David. David is known, would become the greatest king in the nation of Israel. And remember how significant that is for this period of time. Remember? taking place in the time of the judges, when there was no king in Israel. The king's coming. He's coming. There's going to be a king. That's not it. David's no ordinary king. I mean, yeah, he messed up a lot, but he's considered the greatest king in Israel. But he's no, there's something bigger than David going on here. What promise would God make to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? He promised that through the family line of David, and therefore through the family line of Boaz and Elimelech and Ruth, a greater king would come. And that king would sit on the throne forever and rule all the peoples of the world in righteousness, justice, and peace. This king would be the one who would restore all things to God's people, to be the redeemer of the world. Do you, do you, I mean, do you realize how the book of Ruth ends? <laughs> Don't you love the Bible? This is amazing, the way it ends here. There's so much bigger going on here. The family line of Naomi did not continue merely for her sake and her personal peace. The family line of Naomi did not continue merely for the sake of the entire nation of Israel. The family line of Naomi continued for the sake of the entire world because through this family line would be born in the city of Bethlehem, the house of bread, the city that shows forth the provision of God in giving us a bread from heaven. There would be born the king of the world, Jesus Christ. You realize what Ruth is about? You realize what your life is about? There's way bigger things going on than just your pain. And that's not to minimize your pain. But it's to maximize the absolute sovereign goodness of God in the midst of your pain. Naomi went through what she went through so that Jesus could come and bring restoration to all the pain in the world, especially the worst kind of pain, namely what we deserve for our sins. Jesus came 
to take the penalty for sinners like us, to live the life we couldn't live, die the death we deserve to die, rise again, triumphing over sin and death in our place, and take his throne in heaven, and we're just waiting for him to come back and make all things new. That's what Ruth is about. This is what the story's about. If you're not a Christian, if you have yet to bow the knee to King Jesus, if you have yet to see him as the restorer of all things and the one who made the payment for your sins, if you would trust him today, you're fully forgiven by God. You're redeemed by God through Jesus Christ. So I just got kind of just appeal to you, put your trust in Jesus now. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Pastors would love to talk to you more about that. Place your faith in him, this redeemer of the world. The story of Ruth is your story if you would trust Christ. God is doing way bigger things in and through your pain than you can ever dream. And he's doing through your pain far more than just working to bring out some temporary good from it. Like maybe you get a grandson. So much more. Cling tightly to what we read earlier. Romans 8, 28. Oh, I know how that verse can just be slapped around and just, hey, God works all things together for good. No, 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 don't, don't treat it like that. God works all things, including your pain, together for your good. Well, what's that? What's your good? It's what he goes on to say. Romans 8, 29 to 30. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Past tense. You've been glorified yet? I haven't. Why is it in the past tense? Because God is sovereign over everything, including you getting to heaven. And therefore it's in the past tense because it's a done deal. It's good. You're secure. You can trust him. You can trust the sovereign goodness of God, providentially working all things together for your redemption and your everlasting good. Are you in pain? Confused in your pain? Does God seem silent? Take away this today. Remember Ruth. Remember the story of Ruth and rest in God's providence in pain. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.